If you have your Bibles with you, I once again encourage you and invite you to turn with me this morning to Philippians chapter 2. This is a a week where, in particular, it's probably good to have a Bible in front of you or an iPad or a phone or some sort of thing where you can just work your way through this passage because that's what we're going to do. Not going to read the passage, close it up, and then move on and talk about something different or something loosely related. We want to talk about what God says to us through His Word. We were in Philippians last week. If you're visiting with us this morning, we have been working our way uh, through this letter of the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi. And last week we uh, started the verse, uh, started the second chapter. Uh, verses 1 through 4, and today we return to that same chapter looking at the latter half of the passage now, verses 5 through 11. This is a passage that is super familiar to many of you. I recognize that. Many of you have grown up in the church. Many of you have heard this passage hundreds of times. There's an encouragement to you this morning. Fight against that familiarity. Don't just tune me out when I read it, but pray that the Lord would really let you hear the gravity, the sweetness, the magnificence of these words that I'm about to read to you in a moment. The passage that we're going to look at this morning, the second half of uh, the passage we read last week and we'll read again this week, This is a passage that is deeply theological and beautifully doxological. It's a passage that is meant to challenge your heads, but also to stir your hearts. It's a passage that begins before time began and concludes at the end of all things. Many believe that these verses, I think rightfully so, were a hymn of the early church sung by God's people. A hymn that either Paul himself wrote or Paul adopted and included here in this letter to the church at Philippi. Now before I read, those of you who are last week, remember that we began these verses, I began these verses reminding you of the reality that we are We, being humans, we are a fighting people. Sin has brought enmity, tension, conflict into our relationships. Therefore, sin has brought unity, excuse me, disunity into our life together. And some of that is obviously being seen and felt in the church at Philippi. Paul is concerned. And so Paul writes these words, concerned that the people of God remember the God that they worship, remember what they have been given, and today specifically, remember the Savior who has made made them His own. And so that's where we turn our hearts and our attention this morning. If you're able, I'd invite you, as is our tradition here at Ascension, to stand for the reading of God's Word out of honor for His Word. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to read the entirety of the passage. We're going to focus on the latter half this morning. Listen as I read. So if there is any encouragement in Christ... 
any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. This is the Word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. I want to begin this morning with a quote. It's a quote from a familiar author to many of us, C.S. Lewis, author of the wonderful children's series, Chronicles of Narnia, but also author of a wonderful book called Mere Christianity. And C.S. Lewis says this in Mere Christianity, he says, pride has become, excuse me, pride has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Pride always means enmity. It is enmity. And not only enmity between man and man, but enmity to God. In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself unless you know God as that and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison. You do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. It's a powerful quote that taps into some of the words that we not only here in this passage, some of the words we've talked about, words like enmity and pride and humility. Brothers and sisters, we are called, as we began talking of last week, we are called to be a people who look up, not a people who look down. Simply put, this is a passage, this passage is a call to humility. A call to humility because selfish ambition is the primary threat to Christian unity. Unity depends upon humility. And so we've got to find a way in the midst of our selfish natures to die to ourselves, to lay down our rights, and to serve others at cost to ourselves. We've got to find a way to do that. 
Paul says in verse 5, he pleads in verse 5, have this mind among you. Right? There's a striving, there is a, there's a working towards that Paul is calling us to, an imitation that we are called to by the power of His Spirit working in us. But more than that, he says, which is yours? Not just have this mind in you, but it's yours already. United to Christ, you are a new creation. This is who you are. And so there's a sense in where Paul is just saying, be who you are. Let your actions be molded by your identity. And now, to help you out, Paul says, let me remind you of that Jesus. Let me remind you of what that Jesus has done. Let me show you how His heart and how His mind and how His love worked itself out in time and in space. You see, Jesus is the key. Seeing Jesus in all His unbridled glory is the key, not just to humility. It's the key to the Christian life. Which is why we talk again and again in this church about the Gospel. It's all about the Gospel. And so that's what this passage is composed of. It's composed of looking at Jesus to a congregation, some of whom probably would have seen Him alive. This passage is composed of assertion after assertion concerning Jesus. And we're going to divide it up as we work our way through it into three seasons of Jesus' existence. Three acts, so to speak, of Jesus' story. And they're shown to us that we might be changed, that we might be further conformed to His likeness. And so starting in verse 6, we're going to pick this apart phrase by phrase, throwing around some Greek this morning, and we're going to do it around three headings. And the first one is this, the heights from which He came. It's the first thing I want us to see about Jesus this morning. We've got to see the heights from which He came. Paul says, though He was in the form of God. Paul begins by rewinding the tape. Before the ascension, before the resurrection, before the crucifixion, before the feeding of the 5,000, before the manger in Bethlehem, before the angel appeared to Mary, before John in the wilderness, before Israel was even a nation, before Abraham had been called by Yahweh, before anything was even made, Jesus was. Paul takes us to eternity past and reminds us that Jesus has always existed. He uses the Greek word morphe here where we get our word metamorphosis. It's translated here in your English Bibles as form, though he was in the form of God. But when we think about form, we think about outward appearance, right? Those are things that we see. That's a different Greek word that Paul could have used. No, he used this word because this word describes the essence of a person. The very nature of a person, not simply his outward form. John 1, 
Verses 1 through 3, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Jesus was there at the beginning. He was there before the beginning. He has always shared the essential attributes of deity, the glory of the Old Testament, the glory, the glimpses of glory that we see. They are Jesus's as well. John 17, 5, he says, and now, Father, this is Jesus speaking, praying, now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You see, this magnificence of Christ matters. And it certainly mattered in the early church, in the first several centuries of the church, as heresy after heresy was coming out. Challenges to who the person of Christ really was were coming out again and again. But it matters today as well, in part because it reminds us of the heights from which He came. But it doesn't stop there. Paul says, He did not count a quality with God, a thing to be grasped. Now that word grasp there, he's not communicating something that, that, that it's being reached for. No, Paul is communicating clutching to something greedily, keeping hold of it, not letting go of it. In other words, Paul's saying that the heights from which he came the magnificence that he enjoyed. Jesus did not jealously guard that glory or that magnificence or his rights. His privilege, his power was not self-serving, but was outward-facing. You and I, brothers and sisters, we, we live in a world of entitlement. Even just taking that word, we live in a world of titles. Oh, we love our titles. Things before our name, letters after our name, degrees on our walls. We love our titles. I always appreciated my best friend who I noticed this a couple years after we started hanging out. We went to seminary together. When people asked him where he went to school, where he went to college, just in the normal conversation of getting to know someone, he would tell people that he went to a little school up in upstate New York. And some people would just let that be and kind of go on and talk about his life. But I knew he was talking about West Point. He was talking about the prestigious military academy. But he wasn't interested in, in dropping that name. In fact, he wanted to veil that name because he didn't want to sound pretentious. But we love our titles. Even for those who haven't really earned any title, the, word, the world still tells us that we, we deserve a break today, that we're entitled to to much better than we have. The Lord Jesus certainly could have insisted on His titles, couldn't He? 
as they say these days, the Lord Jesus certainly could have flexed, couldn't he? But that wasn't the way it needed to be done. And so the son, for a greater purpose set before him, let go of what should never be let go. His desire to glorify his father and walk in his father's will, his desire to save a people for himself, that love drove him to do the unthinkable. Not just to leave the heights from which he came, but also to go low. And that's the second act of this passage. Not just the heights from which he came, but the depths to which he went. The depths to which he went. As we move on in our text, Paul says he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Now here's a phrase that has stirred up a lot of controversy in the church over hundreds and thousands of years. Some have tried to argue that what this is saying is that Jesus ceased to be God. In becoming human, he extracted from himself the deity that he possessed. But that's not what Paul's saying. In fact, the Greek word that is used here, kenosis, in other places never means emptying, as in a removal of something. What Paul is saying builds upon the truth that he didn't grasp at equality. He made himself nothing, meaning he made nothing of himself. He made nothing of himself or his entrance into the world. In assuming a human nature, he accompanied it with nothing extra, nothing that he deserved. He didn't trade God to become human, but he allowed his divine nature to be veiled. It was still there. Few of the disciples saw it on the Mount of Transfiguration, but it's not what most people saw. Most people saw the outward form of a servant. And this was more than show. This was more than a photo op so that he could be seen mingling with the little people in order to appease the masses. Now, this was humiliating service. This is washing stinky, dirty feet. You remember the story found in John chapter 13, the story of Jesus with his disciples. Listen to it paired with Philippians 2. John 13, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God, Philippians 2, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. John 13, he rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, Philippians 2, he made himself nothing. John 13, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist and began to wash the disciples' feet, Philippians 2, taking the form of a servant, he humbled himself. Jesus came in humility, not just relinquishing the privileges that were rightfully his, but taking the lowest of places. In fact, it was a lowness, Paul says, that was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
This is where we truly see the, the full extent, the full depth of the humility of Christ. I mean, one might think that Jesus would have had enough at some point be driven to say, restore to me what is mine. I can't take this anymore. And yet He resolutely set His face to what needed to be accomplished. And He didn't just die. He died the most humiliating death there was. Even, even death on a cross. It's interesting Paul brings this up because Paul had been speaking to Philippi, this Roman colony which had all the privileges of Roman citizenship, right? I mean, they were proud Roman citizens. We've talked about that. Roman citizens were never put to death this way. Which is why Paul underscores even death on a cross. Isaiah 53, one of the most beautiful passages in Scripture, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And why did this all have to happen, we ask ourselves? Well, the prophet continues, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his stripes we are healed. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, Christ came. He had to come. Because the first Adam failed. Our first representative failed. And so Christ had to come as the, the second Adam. Right? Adam created for fellowship with God and yet rebelled against God. Adam wanted to have his eyes opened and be like God. Jesus did not hold on to equality with God. Adam refused to serve and obey God. Jesus made himself nothing and became a servant to obey. Adam's pride brought death to his people. Jesus' humility brings life to those who are his own. That's why it had to happen. Greatness in our world Looks like Adam, doesn't it? And not Jesus. It doesn't look out for the interests of others more than it does its own. It doesn't count others more significant than yourself. But Jesus' life flips this on its head. Matthew 23, 12. He says, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And that's exactly where our passage goes. It's exactly where our passage ends this morning. To the place that He will rightfully take. The place that He will rightfully take. You see, as a, as a result of the willing humiliation and obedience of Jesus, reward has come. And what is that reward? His true identity has been revealed. 
the name above all names. You see, he is not simply Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the one who will save his people from their sins. He is Lord. Listen to Peter from his sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 36. He says this, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And so make no mistake, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. You will either do it willingly with gladness or you will do it bitterly with great sorrow. And the crux of the issue this morning is, which will you be? How will you bow? How will you confess? What an incredible portrait Paul gives us this morning of the person of Jesus. It's a portrait that must not leave us unchanged. Rather, seeing Jesus must move us from being self-centered, entitled people to other-centered, entitlement-releasing servants. From, from grasping to giving. That's Paul's point. And that's what he calls us to. Have this mind among yourselves. The perils of pride are another sermon altogether, but know this, Isaiah 66, 2, the Lord says, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And so the bottom line, brothers and sisters, is particularly in the church, how can we possibly, after looking at Christ's chosen path of humility, consistently demand what we are entitled to? How can we always insist on having things our way? How can we think that we are more deserving than anyone else? See, the path to humility begins by gazing at the humility of our Lord Jesus not just emulating that humility, but recognizing that nothing but this kind of life fits a follower of Jesus. Have this mind in yourselves, which is already yours. As the hymn writer penned, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count as loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Remembering the height from which he came, remembering the depths to which he descended, be who you are. Have this mind in yourself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that we need grace. We need grace to live contrary to our bent and broken natures that grab a hold, that cling tightly, 
that selfishly guard rather than selflessly give. Oh, Father, would You, by Your Spirit, by Your Word, would You convict our hearts this morning and show each of Your children in this place clear paths to walk in obedience to this Word. And Father, for those who are here this morning that maybe have never bowed the knee, maybe they're listening this morning and they've never bowed the knee to Jesus, may today be the day of salvation. May that knee bend gladly rather than bitterly. Father, make it so for the glory of Your name. In Jesus' name, Amen.